I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words in you, abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask, the Father, in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us at Faith this morning. My name's Joey. If, if we've never been introduced or you're visiting for the first time, uh, I'm one of the lead pastors here. I'm excited to uh, talk through J uh, John chapter 15 with you this morning. Uh, we're in a season in the Christian calendar where we're, we're in what's called Lent as we look towards Easter and approach Easter. It's a season in which we think about and contemplate and specifically put focus on our own sinfulness. Not as like a self-flagellation depressing thing, but so that in light of our sinfulness, we look to the life that Jesus is offering us with uh, renewed gratitude for the grace that he showed to us, which is why we're looking uh, over the next couple weeks in John chapter 14, 15, 16, 17. Uh, this is Jesus, you know, on the night that he's about to be betrayed, sharing some kind of last important things, some last key things with his disciples, some ideas he needs them to understand and kind of hold in the back of their minds because he's trying to explain to them you can tell reading the text, it's just full of heart, it's full of pathos, because knowing that he's about to be betrayed, he's, he's like, I've got a few things you really need to know. You need to know how much I love you. You need to know how I'm loving you to the end. 
Now, all throughout the, the Gospel of John, John's account of Jesus' uh, life and his death and his resurrection, uh, Jesus makes a number of statements that are preceded with the words, I am. In each one of these statements, he follows it up with, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am, you know, and, and each one of these kind of gives us a, a glimpse or a picture of what Jesus' mission and Jesus' character is all about. And in John chapter 15, the first half of John 15, we find the last of these I am statements where we get a, get a glimpse of what Jesus' mission and character is when he says in verse 1, I am the true vine. Now it's after dinner, uh, they've finished eating, they've left behind the upper room where uh, the, Jesus and his disciples had had Jesus' last supper, and they begin walking, heading down out of Jerusalem, across the valley, up the Mount of Olives, and maybe he, the, the idea of the vine just sort of came to him. It, it was a pretty common symbol for the nation of Israel, printed on their coins, inscribed above the temple. Uh, but he saw a vine, or thought of the vine, and said, you know, look at that vine. I'm the true vine. I'm the vine and you are the branches. And as we walk through this analogy that Jesus lays out over the next 17 verses, and we think about what it means for Jesus to be the vine, we're going to discover basically one main point. One main idea is going to hopefully come across over and over again. When Jesus says, I am the vine, he's saying that his entire mission is oriented around connecting you and connecting me to an organic, vital relationship with him. The whole reason Jesus came to earth, died, and rose again was to connect you, to connect me, to connect all of us to an organic and vital relationship with him. So that's what we're going to explore as we dig into this. Because when Jesus says, I am the vine, he's making a statement about growth, about production, about life, about how you get it and keep it and grow in it. When he says, I am the vine, he says he's interested in fruit and how you produce it. He's interested in the fruit of an organic, vital relationship with him. And if you've read through the New Testament, you probably noticed fruit is a common metaphor uh, used throughout to talk about the growth and the production of character and of life in Christ. You think of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruit of the indwelling Spirit connecting us with Jesus. And so when Jesus says, I am the vine, he's saying, I'm the key to that. I'm the key to you growing in fruitfulness. I'm the key to you becoming what you can't become in any other way. Jesus is saying, if you have an organic, vital connection to me, you'll grow in ways that maybe you didn't even expect. As I was writing this, I got curious, and so I Googled the key to and then left it blank, because you know Google autofills suggestions based on your previous search history and what other people are searching, which is kind of interesting. People are searching for the key to happiness, uh, the key to success, the key to understanding, the key to exercising influence, the key to getting rock-hard abs, and that one was not from my search history, um, and the key to my heart. That's what people are searching for. And the internet is filled with motivational pages and, you know, keys to happiness, keys to success. And if you take the time to read them, you'll find out that they pretty much all fall into one of three categories. Uh, either you're being told what to search for, how to do your searching, or how to tap into some secret power you'd never heard of before to get what you're looking for. 
You know, they may, may tell you what you need to do is change, like, what your goal is. Uh, change the, change the, what you're looking for or change the way you're doing the work, like put in a life hack or a productivity tip or something like that. Or even change the effort you're putting into it. Work harder. Or tap into the secret power of now or the power of mindfulness or the power of love. And when Jesus says, I'm the key to you growing, I'm the vine, he doesn't mean in any of those ways. Jesus is not saying, I'm some new secret power that you can tap into or that I'm a motivation for you to work harder. Uh, What he's saying is that he's the key to growth because he's the one doing it. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity about this idea of how we grow in Christ, and he says something really interesting. He says that growth in Christ comes from pretending to be like Jesus, Uh, but not the bad kind of pretending, the good kind of pretending, like the the kind that uh, children do when they learn how to be adults by playing house, by pretending what it's like to be an adult. And what Jesus says is, is much like a parent can see their child playing house and sort of guide them a little bit into what it really looks like. He says this, very often the only way to get a quality in reality is to start behaving as if you have it already. You see what's happening. The Christ himself, the Son of God, who is man, just like you, and God, just like his Father, is actually at your side and is already at that moment beginning to turn your pretense into a reality. He's beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He's beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought into you, beginning to turn the tin soldier into a live man. He goes on and says, this means that a real person, Christ, here and now, in that very room where you are saying your prayers, is doing things to you. It's not the question of a good man who died 2,000 years ago. It's a living man. Still as much a man as you and still as much God as he was when he created the world, really coming in and interfering with your very self, killing the old natural self in you and replacing it with the kind of self he has. At first, only for moments, then for longer periods. Finally, if all goes well, turning you permanently into a different sort of thing, into a new little Christ, a being which, in its own small way, has the same kind of life as God which shares in his power, joy, knowledge, and eternity. When Jesus says, I am the vine, he's saying, look, I'm not a life hack or a productivity tip. I'm not an inspiration to work harder or a magic power for you to tap into to get what you want. He says, I'm the one bringing life into you. And that's because, like I said, Jesus' entire mission is oriented around connecting you to an organic, vital relationship with him. So to dig into this idea, we're going to just ask basically two big questions. What does this connection look like, and how do we draw life from it? What does it look like? How do we draw life from it? So first, what does this connection look like? Now, I've already used the words organic and vital, so we're just going to take those one at a time and explore what we think they mean. First is organic, and obviously, since Jesus is using an illustration from agriculture, it's an organic metaphor, right? He's the vine. God the Father is the gardener. We're the branches. Branches bear fruit and get pruned so they'll bear more fruit. And the first nine verses of this passage are filled with these organic words and phrases. But the second half of the passage, verses 10 through 17, aren't quite as organic sounding. You may have noticed. It almost sounds more mechanical. Keep my commandments. This is my commandment. Love each other. 
You're my friends if you do what I commanded you. I chose you, I appointed you, go, bear fruit. And you know, if we read the second half of the passage and forget about the first or read it without referencing the first, uh, it it starts to sound like what Jesus is telling us to do is a lot of uh, mechanical, external things that we need to put on to ourselves in order to have this life in him. Like, try to love more, keep my commands, do what I tell you, go and bear fruit, prove to me that you're really my disciple by all the good things you do for me. And while those are definitely true things that we do, if they're connected or separated from the life of the vine, from the first half of the chapter, we we accomplish nothing. Because our relationship with Jesus is supposed to be an organic one, not a mechanical one. Jesus is looking for change in us through an internal organic dynamic. He's not looking for compliance from us through an external mechanical force. Let me say that again. Jesus is after change in us through an internal organic dynamic, not compliance from us through an external mechanical force. Let me give you an example. When I was in high school, I worked at our small town daycare. This is a town of like 2,000 people, so there was one daycare facility basically in the whole town. And uh, since I was in school all day, I always worked the afternoon shift uh, when parents would come and pick their kids up, you know, when we closed. Um, and our, we technically closed at 6 p.m., but we routinely had parents coming and picking their kids up at 6.10, 6.15, 6.30, sometimes as late as like 7 o'clock. Parents would come and pick their kids up, and they always were just, you know, full of apologies. Like, I'm so sorry, I don't know what happened, time got away from me, and all of that. So our director decided to try some compliance through external force. She initiated a fee. It was 10 bucks for every five minutes you were there past closing time. So it was like, that's big, right? So it's like, I mean, because we had tried the emails, we had tried the, hey, we close at six. We had tried the, you know, we're really not paying our staff to stay here longer. We tried the whole, I'd really like to go home and have dinner with my family, but you know, you haven't picked up your kids yet thing. We tried information, we tried guilt, we tried everything. And so we thought, well, let's try, let's try a, a fee, a fine. And you know what? It didn't work. Because one of two things happened. Either parents got uh, angry at us and bitter and resentful and pulled their kids out because we were imposing this on them, or they're like, oh sweet, now I can pay for the extra time, and just paid the fine. <laughs> Didn't have to feel guilty anymore because we'd given them a way out. See, we thought maybe external like force would bring about compliance, but it never does. External force can only create temporary compliance. It can never bring about internal, dynamic, organic heart change. And I don't know what would have brought about like inner heart change in parents so they would pick up their kids on time, but I know it didn't work. Force. See, Jesus doesn't want us to just look good on the outside. He doesn't want us to just comply on the outside. He, he's not really interested in us stapling fruit onto our branches. He would rather we produce it. Not just look good, but actually grow fruit on our own through an internal dynamic, not an external compliance. And let me just say, if, if you think that Christianity is all about external compliance, about following a set of rules, then you're fundamentally misunderstanding Christianity. Christianity is not about what we do. It's about who we are 
which is more fundamental and more important than what we do. What we do is important, but only because it's evidence about what we really are. So if, if you've gotten anywhere in your Christian life, uh, you've probably quickly realized that everything that really needs to be done in our souls can only be done by God anyway. It doesn't come about from me trying to put structures over me that are going to force me to comply. It only comes about from an internal dynamic heart change, something that can only come from life on the vine, which is not supposed to be mechanical, but organic. And not just organic, but also vital. By vital, I mean life giving. Jesus' entire mission is oriented around connecting you to an organic, vital, life-giving relationship with him. So think again about the analogy of the vine and the branch. For the branch, where does life come from? It comes from the vine, right? It doesn't come from anywhere else. Uh, cut off a branch and a new branch can grow in its place, but cut a branch off and toss it aside and it dies. A branch has to stay connected to the vine in order to get life. And not just attached to the vine superficially, but connected vitally. Jesus says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In the same way that a branch can't produce any fruit when it's disconnected from the vine, so we can't produce any fruit unless we're disconnected from Jesus. Now, you may notice in this analogy, there's two different kinds of branches, both looking like they're connected, but only one of them bears fruit. See, in verse 2, Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. There's two types of branches, ones that bear fruit and ones that don't, but both are connected until the gardener comes along and takes off the ones that aren't growing any fruit. They're connected, but internally, uh, that, that life isn't there. The life is not flowing from the vine to the branch, to the dead branch. And so every branch that doesn't bear fruit is removed because it's not connected any, anyway. It's, it's superficially attached or just artificially hanging on. Uh, kind of like my fingernail right now, actually. I know you may remember I told you a couple of weeks ago about uh, the bookshelves that I was building. Well, this is not from that. This is from building a chicken coop, and, um, which is amazing. It's a thing of glory. My wife calls it the chicken palace, and I'm quite proud of it. But uh, somewhere in the process of hammering in poultry stables, I managed to hammer my finger. Uh, nailed it. Dead on. And it's been a couple of weeks now since I did that. And now if you look closely, uh, you can see evidence that my fingernail is still attached but it's not really connected anymore, if you know what I mean. Like, it's still there, but there's no life going to that part. I know I'm really making some of you squeamish. There, I, I have only found two people so far that are like, can I look at your finger? Can we pull the skin back and see? You know, and, and sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Um, it's really kind of cool, actually. But uh, I'm supposed to be wearing, like, a finger splint cover for it, and I bought two, and the cats have stolen both of them. I have no idea where they are, and I'm tired of spending money on cat toys, so I just not doing anything with it anymore. What I could do, and I thought about this, is I could actually get some um, like skin tone fingernail polish and paint it over, and then no one would know that it's dead, but it doesn't change the fact that it's still dying, and it's still at some point gonna come off. And some people go their whole lives externally connected to Christianity, but never internally drawing life from Jesus. 
People will say, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Christianity, I was raised in the church. But Jesus is telling us through this analogy that external attachment is nothing without an internal connection, without a life-giving, without a vital relationship with him. If we're not drawing life from him, we're fruitless, never really connected at all. And really the prime example of that in, in the context of Jesus telling this right here is Judas, one of the 12. Because it's down to the 11 right now. Judas has already left to go betray Jesus and uh, sell him out to the Pharisees. He left dinner early. So all this stuff that we're looking at, Jesus is saying to just the 11 left behind. Judas has left. And so, you know, Judas did the same thing that the other 11 did. He spent three years with Jesus. But while they were, were connected, he was apparently only attached, uh, like a branch duct taped onto the vine, never drawing life from Jesus. And I know right now some of you may be wondering, well, how do I really know if I'm connected to the vine? How do I know if I'm bearing enough fruit to know that I'm connected? And I want you to see a couple things in this analogy that are, that are really important. Um, first, don't miss that if you are connected to the vine, then fruit is inevitable. Okay, there's, no, uh, there's no category here for someone who's vitally connected to the vine, drawing life from Jesus, yet producing absolutely no fruit. If you're connected to the vine, you will produce some fruit, but don't judge yourself based on the immediacy of the fruit, the amount of the fruit, or even the quality of it. Judge yourself on whether or not there is fruit at all or not, and whether or not that fruit increases over time. Fruit is inevitable, but that doesn't mean that it's immediate, or amazingly great quality, or that there will be a huge abundance of it. Uh, only God can look at the inside of a branch and see if it's vitally connected and drawing life from the vine. Looking at verse 2, Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Notice he doesn't say, Every branch that bears less fruit than my favorite branch gets cut off. He doesn't say, Every branch that bears only a little bit of fruit, I'm going to go ahead and sacrifice and just keep the high performers. See, God, the divine gardener, isn't, isn't comparing less productive branches to the more productive branches and then cutting off the less productive ones. Earlier this week, I was playing a card game with a couple of uh, college students who were back on spring break, and at one point in the game, I said, I have 23 points, to which one of the other players responded like, that's cute, I have like almost three times exactly that amount. And that's great when you're playing a card game and really bad when you're comparing fruit especially the fruit of your relationship with Christ. Because some of us are on like the, the 23 points side, or, or even like we just have a couple of points, and we're looking at our fruit and we're tempted to, to despair. Jesus, why aren't I producing fruit like that person? What's wrong with me? Or we can be tempted to sort of like this reverse pride where we're like, well, I mean, look at that holier-than-thou so-called saint. I mean, they may be fruitful, but at least I'm authentic. I mean, that's what fruit is. Or if you're the person with more fruit, you're the person with almost exactly three times as much as everyone else, uh, it's pretty easy to become judgmental. Hey, why aren't you growing faster? I mean, come on, you've had as much time as me. Why haven't you caught up with me yet? How come you're not, you're not producing as much fruit as I am? As if the Christian life is a state fair competition to see who has the biggest pumpkin. That's not the point. The point is growth. 
mid-century uh, English novelist named uh, Evelyn Vaugh. Some of you guys might be familiar with him. He wrote Brideshead Revisited and a couple other novels. He's actually, he was a brilliant satirist and sort of heralded as, as the ultra-modern man. So when he converted to Christianity, he shocked his family, his friends, and the entire literary world. There were open letters back and forth in the papers about his conversion, uh, discussing it back and forth. But just because, just because he converted doesn't mean he became an instant saint. And, and actually, he's kind of famous for not ever really becoming much of what you would think of as even like a baby saint. See, a friend once, uh, after his conversion, witnessed him reduce an admirer to tears, just basically out of sheer spite and confronted him, asking him how he could behave so cruelly and yet still call himself a Christian. And he replied, and I think he's being absolutely serious here. He responded to his friend, you have no idea how much nastier I'd be if I were not a Christian. He says, without supernatural aid, I would hardly be a human being. I think Vaughn was giving an honest answer. I think he knew he wasn't living up to the standard of what it means to be a polite Christian. But I also think he knew that he was growing from where he was to somewhere else. It's not about where we start or even how much we grow, but that we are growing. And it's definitely not about how much we grow in comparison to others. When Jesus says every branch that bears fruit, he'll prune so that it bears more fruit. He's not comparing the branch to another one. He's comparing it to itself. And to that one standard, is it producing fruit? That's all Jesus is asking of us. So if you want to judge your fruitfulness, uh, don't do it by looking at others. Do it by looking at yourself. Do you have more fruit this year than you did last year? Do you have more fruit this year than you did five years ago, 10 years ago? Do you have more fruit today than you did when you first decided to follow Christ and draw your life from him? That's the only comparison that matters because God's the gardener, not us, right? We're just branches. He's the only one who knows who's bearing fruit and who's not and who's in the process of bearing it. All our job is is to produce fruit. That's all we do, not judge other branches' production. So if Jesus' entire mission is oriented around connecting you to an organic, vital relationship with him, then how do we draw life from him? How do we draw life from the vine? How do we live in the vine as Jesus offers? And it's important that we've taken these questions in this order. First, what is this life? And then how do we draw on it? Because if we get it in the wrong order, if we start talking about how we draw on the life first, then, then we start to get tempted to think that it's the things that we do to draw life that actually earn us the right to draw that life. It's an important distinction because the things that we'll spend a few minutes talking about are the ways you draw life from the vine, not the way you get connected to the vine in the first place. You see the difference? Fruit grows after you're connected to the vine. Branches never produce fruit in order to earn the right to be connected. That's not the way Jesus is telling this analogy here. Fruit comes after you're connected, not before. So how do we draw life from the vine? Well, there's one main verb that Jesus uses to describe what life in the vine looks like from our perspective. He calls it abiding, or your translation might say remain. Uh, it's a word that means to basically stay in one place or stay in one particular type of relationship or kind of relationship with him. 
And really the key word is a little preposition, in. Jesus says, abide in me, remain in me, remain in the vine, abide in the vine. And he's calling us to an even closer relationship to him than the relationship that a branch has with a vine. Because, you know, this is where we're stretching the boundaries of the analogy here. You don't usually think of a branch being in the vine, but attached to it. And Jesus is saying, just as the branch is in the vine, you are in me. And he's inviting us to the closest possible relationship that we can have with him. Take a look at verse 4. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. In other words, the branch won't bear fruit unless it continually remains in the closest possible relationship with the vine. It certainly won't bear much fruit and abundant fruit unless it does. And you and I won't bear fruit unless we too continually remain in the closest possible relationship we can with Jesus. But notice at the beginning of verse 4, he makes us a promise. Abide in me and I in you. We are called to abide in him in the same manner, to the same extent with which he is abiding in us. He is already promising us that he will always remain available. The vine is always there. The life that he's offering is always there for us to draw on. He's never pulling it back. He's never restricting it based on how much we're taking it. He's saying it's always here and it's always available for you and I have it for you and I will always remain in this relationship with you. It's on you now to draw that life and relationship from me. That's our responsibility, but he gives his responsibility too in in verse 2. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more. Now, I did a little research this week into pruning vines because, you know, back then everybody knew what viticulture was all about and the basic understanding of, of how you prune a vine, but now it's mostly a hobby for hipsters and urban farmers, and, and I don't, so I don't know anything about it. So I did some research. The point I discovered, the point of pruning is to train the branch to draw life completely from the vine, not to throw out a bunch of leaves and try to generate its own sustenance, but to draw it from the vine so that it can produce healthy, abundant fruit. According to the Old Farmer's Almanac, when you prune a grapevine, you shouldn't be afraid to cut off up to 90% of the previous year's growth. 90%. In order to get a good harvest, a good crop, the gardener is going to cut away a majority of the healthy growth. So what to my eyes looks like a massacre, to the master gardener's eyes looks like healthy pruning. One pastor put it this way, when God, the master gardener, takes the knife to us, he never removes anything that would not have been a loss to keep. When Jesus prunes us, he never takes away anything that wouldn't have caused us harm if we'd held on to it. He always removes the things that are keeping us from growing in him. And I know my response is to say something like, hey, Jesus, I don't know if you know this, but I'd really rather be more like a bonsai tree where you just do one little nick a year and not really like this fruit vine, grape vine, where you're cutting off 90% of these things I feel like I need and want. And, and Jesus is responding like, no, you're, you're not a little decorative tree. You're, you're, you're a fruitful vine, and I want you to be fruitful. Jesus is saying my whole life and death and resurrection and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in you and the home I have for you in heaven is all about you bearing the fruit of a deeply abiding life with me, and that's going to hurt. But when the fruit comes in, it will have been worth it. 
And that's what Jesus says God is going to do in our lives. He's going to prune us. He's going to prune us, too, in, in five kind of main ways. Uh, we're just going to take a couple minutes to go through, sort of skim through the rest of the passage and see what Jesus does in us and through us to prune us, to shape us into fruitful disciples. Five main ways. Um, I'll just give these to you real quick so that as I'm going through them, um, just in case you miss them. He prunes us through his word, our prayers, his love, our obedience, and his joy. You get that? His word, our prayers, his love, our obedience, and his joy. So we'll just take those quickly in order as we skim through the rest of the passage. His word. Look in verse 3. Actually, let me back up to verse 2 a little bit. Um, He says, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And in verse 3, he says this curious thing to his disciples. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, the word prunes and the word clean come from the same verb and sound almost identical. So it's like Jesus is saying, every branch that bears fruit, I'm going to prune so it bears more, and you have already been pruned through the word that I have spoken to you. The main way in which Jesus takes the knife to us is through his word. Later in verse 7, he connects abiding in him with his words abiding in us. He uses his word as a knife to prune us. And as Jesus' words and the word of God gets into us and sinks down into us, it, it cuts out the stuff that inhibits fruitfulness in us as we submit to that knife. As we read God's words to us, it shows us again and again how we're setting up rival gods in God's place, putting too much of our affections and our hopes on good things instead of on God. And, and like a master surgeon, he uses the knife of the word to cut out everything harmful so that what's left behind can grow. God uses his word to prune us, but he also uses our prayers. Uh, Take a look again at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Jesus says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. When I was five years old, I think the movie Aladdin came out and I watched it so many times I could quote and sing the whole thing. And the part that really got me was the genie saying, you have three wishes. And sometimes I think we read stuff like this and especially uh, verse Uh, 16 later, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And we say, we think of it in terms of like, hey, genie, here's my wish. When what Jesus means is if you are abiding in me, if you are remaining in me, if you're in the closest possible relationship with me, your wishes will become my wishes. You will want for yourself the same thing I want for you, which is a deep and abiding relationship with me. And Jesus promises us, I will answer every prayer to that end which doesn't necessarily mean he's going to give us exactly what we want, unless what we want is a deeper relationship with him. Like in verse 16, when it says, whatever you ask the Father in my name, in my name doesn't mean you just put on the end, in Jesus' name, amen. It's more like a preface where you say, if it pleases the king, this is what I'm asking. But our king is a whole lot wiser than we are and infinitely more knowledgeable. And what pleases him is to draw us into a relationship with him. So as we pray and we watch God answer prayers and not answer prayers, both show us what he's going to use to draw us towards him and draw us towards his love. His love is the third thing that prunes us if you look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus says. Now, the disciples have spent three years watching Jesus rest in his Father's love. 
Jesus did nothing out of a desire to earn love from anyone, least of all from his father. He lived his life completely confident, knowing he had his father's love and that nothing was going to take it away. And in the same way that God the father loved Jesus, Jesus loves us sacrificially, eternally, unconditionally, literally to the death. We're at the point in the narrative of John and in the Christian year where we're starting to look ahead towards Jesus' sacrificial death. His death accomplishing for us something that we could never accomplish on our own. As he says in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends. He says a few verses later. If we were to continue with the vine analogy, what's coming is Jesus, our vine, being uprooted, cut off, cast aside, and burned up so that you and I would only ever be pruned. As hard as the knife is for us, it was infinitely worse for him as he was completely cut off so that you and I would only become cut back. By his wounds, we are healed. He's our vine that we connect to and draw life from. And he's the only vine we have that will willingly sacrifice itself to give us life. You know, we should be asking ourselves, what's my vine? What's the thing I'm connected to that I'm drawing life from? What relationship is it? What, uh, what person is it? What, what accolades is it? What credentials is it? What, uh, what achievements is it that I am, I am drawing on to get life from? Because Jesus is saying, look, I'm the true vine. I'm the only vine that can give you the life you're looking for. And when we see that and we see what Jesus has done for us, it leads us naturally into the next two things that he uses to prune us, uh, which is we've looked at his word, um, our prayers, we've looked at his, um, his love, and now we're looking at our obedience. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Knowing that he's the vine who sacrificed himself for us leads us naturally into obedience. Now, if we read that verse by itself, it sounds a lot like Jesus is saying that if we obey him perfectly, then he'll continue to love us. That's not what's going on here. Obedience isn't how you gain relationship. It's evidence of a relationship. My six-year-old daughter, Anna, is a tiny little nerd in training. She loves her engineering after-school club. She loves going to work with her mama and organizing things. But she doesn't act like me or act like my wife in order for us to accept her as our daughter. She acts like me and she acts like my wife because she already is our daughter. It comes naturally because she's our child. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If you're abiding in me, if you're remaining connected in as close of a relationship as is possible with me, then you're going to look like me. You're going to act like I do. Jesus says, my choosing friendship with you is going to affect you in such a way that you become a more loving, a more gracious, a more generous, a more patient, a kinder person because of the grace with which I have loved you first. You're going to end up looking like me, Jesus says. Because being loved by Jesus changes us. If it doesn't, we don't really understand how loved we are and we don't really love him in return. Being loved by Jesus and loving him in return, being pruned to become like him in obedience is the goal of this relationship. And it results in us being filled with his joy. 
verse 11. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So Jesus knows exactly how fruitful each one of us is going to be. And he rejoices over each one of us individually. It doesn't matter how our relative fruitfulness compares to each other. It doesn't matter which of us uh, uh, makes greater gains or ascends to higher heights. It doesn't matter to him. Jesus rejoices over the fruitfulness of each of his chosen branches, like looking at us like an only child, excited for us when we fulfill what he knows we can. Like, like, a, child is, like a child is overjoyed to know that their parents delight in them. He wants us to know that he delights in us. Jesus wants our joy to be full because we fully recognize how much joy we bring him as his chosen branches. He prunes us and makes us fruitful through his word, through our prayers, through his love, through our obedience, and through his joy. Remember, Jesus' entire mission is oriented around connecting you to an organic, vital relationship with him. And that relationship does not come without a cost to us. We will be pruned. We will be shaped. We will become fruitful in ways that we never foresaw, in ways that feel painful and strange because we never thought of it. Again, C.S. Lewis puts it this way in Mere Christianity. Uh, He says, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked. The whole outfit, I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. And he follows it up with this great image. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting, rid- he's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew, you knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? Well, the explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra door on there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. That's what Jesus offers us in life in the vine. Father, you have given us in Christ this offer of life, a life that fills and bears fruit and produces fruit in us. And you you love when each of us make a step like an infant, but you're never satisfied until we're running fully like a mature adult. God, help us to draw our life from Jesus, our true vine. In his name we pray, amen.